Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR-130B and 120th, The Use of the Law, Promises of Law, Leviticus, Lev 26, verses 3-45. Leviticus 26, verses 3-45, The Use of the Law. Leviticus 26, 3 to 45. If ye walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season, and the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And your threshing shall reach unto the vintage, and the vintage shall reach unto the sowing time. And ye shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. And I will give peace in the land, and ye shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will rid evil beasts out of the land, neither shall the sword go through your land, and ye shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. And five of you shall chase an hundred, and an hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. For I will have respect unto you, and make you fruitful, and multiply you, and establish my covenant with you. And ye shall eat old store, and bring forth the old because of the new. And I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and ye shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt, that ye should not be their bondmen. And I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you go upright. But if ye will not hearken unto me, and will not do all these commandments, and if ye shall despise my statutes, or if your soul abhor my judgments, so that ye will not do all my commandments, but that ye break my covenant, I also will do this unto you. I will even appoint over you terror, consumption, and the burning age that shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart, and ye shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. And I will set my face against you, and ye shall be slain before your enemies. They that hate you shall reign over you, and ye shall flee when none pursueth you. And if ye will not yet for all this hearken unto me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heaven as iron and your earth as brass. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield or increase, neither shall the trees of the field yield their fruits. And if ye walk contrary unto me and will not hearken unto me, I will bring seven times more plagues upon you according to your sins. I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children and destroy your cattle and make you few in number, and your highway shall be desolate. And if you will not be reformed by me by these things, but will walk contrary unto me, then will I also walk contrary unto you, and will punish you yet seven times for your sins. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall avenge the quarrel of my covenant. And when ye are gathered together within your cities, I will send the pestilence among you, and ye shall be delivered in the hand of the enemy." And when I have broken the staff of your bread, ten women shall bake your bread in one oven, and they shall deliver you your bread again by weight, and ye shall eat and not be satisfied. And if ye will not for all this hearken unto me, but walk contrary unto me, 
Then I will walk contrary unto you also in fury, and I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. And ye shall eat the flesh of your sons, and the flesh of your daughters shall ye eat. And I will destroy your high places, and cut down your images, and cast your carcasses upon the carcasses of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. And I will make your cities waste, and bring your sanctuaries unto desolation. And I will not smell the savour of your sweet odours, and I will bring the land into desolation, and your enemies which dwell therein shall be astonished at it. And I will scatter you among the heathen, and will draw out a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate, and your cities waste. Then shall the land enjoy her Sabbaths, as long as it lieth desolate, and ye be in your enemies' land. Even then shall the land rest and enjoy her Sabbaths. As long as it lieth desolate, it shall rest, because it did not rest in your Sabbaths when ye dwelt upon it. And upon them that are left alive of you I will send a faintness into their hearts in the land of their enemies. And the sound of a shaken leaf shall chase them, and they shall flee as fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when none pursueth. And they shall fall one upon another as it were before a sword when none pursueth, and ye shall have no power to stand before your enemies. And ye shall perish among the heathen, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And they that are left of you shall pine away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands, and also in the iniquities of their fathers shall they pine away with them. If they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their trespass which they trespassed against me, and that also that they have walked contrary unto me, and that I also have walked contrary unto them, and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, and they then accept the punishment of their iniquity, then will I remember my covenant with Jacob, and also my covenant with Isaac, and also my covenant with Abraham will I remember, and I will remember the land. The land also shall be left of them, and shall enjoy her Sabbaths while she lieth desolate without them. And they shall accept of the punishment of their iniquity, because even because they despised my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. And yet for all that, when they be in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away. Neither will I abhor them to destroy them utterly and to break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sakes remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the heathen, that I may, might be their God. I am the Lord. Biblical law has receded in relevance in the modern world. In the past two and a half years, we have been studying the Ten Commandments and all the subordinate laws which are related to the Ten Commandments. We finished last week our study of the Tenth Commandment. We have seen how these laws have been neglected, how people no longer move in terms of the law of God, how they no longer have respect unto the earth and her requirements of a Sabbath, how no longer do they pay any attention to the laws of debt, 
nor the laws of the family, nor any of these things, but despise them. These things were for a long time kept as law by Christians, but the rise of Protestantism has deeply infected both Protestants and Catholics and has led to a decline of and virtual abandonment of biblical law. Pietism stresses spiritual religion. The law stresses a very material religion. The law says that our life is related to the material facts of the world around us. How to use the earth, how to use money, how to use anything in this world, how to deal with our fellow men. Biblical law, biblical religion is very material, very relevant. It speaks of our everyday affairs. Unfortunately, it was the Reformation which brought to the forefront the doctrine of justification that lost the opportunity to set straight also the doctrine of sanctification. Both doctrines had suffered at the latter part of the Middle Ages because of the rise of pietism, the various cults, mystical movements of the day. Luther brought to the forefront the true doctrine of justification. At the beginning, he spoke very clearly on sanctification. If you examine his small catechism, he says that the rule of faith, that is the way of sanctification, is the law. The first person to break with that was one of his close associates, Agricola, who tried to push the matter of justification by faith to the point where he said that it made no difference what a man did. As long as he acknowledged justification by God, he could be any kind of a sinner, and it didn't matter. He virtually denied a doctrine of sanctification, any necessity of righteousness and holiness. Luther opposed him at some disputations they held, but little by little, because it was a good club to use against the Roman Catholic emphasis on works in salvation, that is, in the doctrine of justification, Luther began to attack any kind of works, any kind of law-keeping. As a result, in a famous sermon of 1525, Luther denounced the law. The damage he did was tremendous. He did it partly because having before that taught the law, many of the poor peasants began to appeal to the law of God against the injustices they were suffering. And it finally led to the peasants' rebellion. Luther denounced both the peasants and the Anabaptists, and in a sense they needed denouncing in part. But in doing so, he denounced also the law of God to which they appealed. And he said that the law only had bound the Jews and the Ten Commandments had nothing to do with us. 
quote, they are dead and gone. Where he, Moses, gives commandments, we are not to follow him except so far as he agrees with the natural law, unquote. The natural law, in other words, the law of the nations insofar as the nations have any kind of law. Unfortunately, Calvin also made the same statement, while also, like Luther, affirming the law as the rule of faith, the way of sanctification. Luther went so far as to declare, and I quote, Sin cannot separate man from God, even if we commit murder and fornication a thousand times a day, unquote. It is with extravagant statements like this that he made that he has given Catholic theologians so ideal a tool to discredit the Reformation. Now, if a man wants a spiritual religion or a mystical religion, the Bible is his enemy because the Bible is law-oriented. But if he wants a material, a relevant religion, one that tells him how to handle what he has, his life, his property, his money, his entire responsibilities, then biblical law is basic. It is inescapable. Our scripture today is what is known as the great exhortation. And the whole point of the great exhortation is that there can be no successful material life for man apart from the law of God. There are three parts to this great exhortation. The first part is verses 3 to 13. In these verses, the material blessings of obedience to the law of God is declared. The result of obedience to the law is good harvests, good rain, excellent yield of wine, peace and prosperity, no evil beasts, victory against our enemies and God's favor and presence. Indeed, it is declared, ye shall chase your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword. And five of you shall chase an hundred, and an hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight, and your enemy shall fall before you by the sword. Verses 7 and 8. Thus, very definitely, the great exhortation says that any kind of material prospering in life is irrevocably tied to obedience to the law. On the other hand, in verses 14 to 13, the curses for disobedience to the law are spelled out. It is one of mounting judgment. The more the disobedience, the greater the judgment. Disease, defeat, want, terror, drought, plagues, and conquest. He shall flee when none pursueth you. The judgments will culminate in conquest. 
frightful things that they would never have dreamed of as occurring among them will occur. Cannibalism is cited as a specific example and a scattering finally among the nations. The earth will disappoint a people under judgment, as will the heavens. The heavens will be as iron, we are told, that is, no rain. And the earth is as brass, unwatered, hard, sterile, giving no crops to the disobedient. Then the third section, verses 34 to 45, God declares as he judges the people he will give the land a rest. The land has been abused. The land must have its Sabbaths. So while the people are given over to terror and to slavery and captivity, the earth will have a rest. And if they repent, repentance will lead to restoration. This, in brief, is the content of the great exhortation. It is true for all time. Certainly, we today are beginning to see the great exhortation's warnings fulfilled in our midst. Moses here gives as an example of cannibalism, extreme want, famine, to the point where mothers kill their children to feed the rest of the family. In our own midst, judgment has progressed to the point where we too are witnessing cannibalism without the excuse of want. God's law is true. Now, as we analyze this great exhortation, we must say that it is clearly addressed to Israel. This is the excuse used by most modern theologians to say it has no significance for us. On the other hand, the Sermon on the Mount is addressed just as clearly to the disciples. Does that mean the Sermon on the Mount has no meaning for us? Well, of course, that's what the dispensationalists say. This is why the dispensationalists have virtually no part of the Bible that they adhere to. That was said to the Jews, and that was said to the disciples, and that was said to the Corinthians, and that was said to the people in Rome, and therefore there's really nothing said to us except that there's a God. That's the alternative. Either the word of God is a unity and is God's word to all men, or it is not. And to deny any part of scripture is ultimately to deny all of it. Then we cannot believe that God has no judgment for men and nations in the Christian era. And this is what they also state. We're specifically told over and over again in the New Testament that there is judgment. In fact, Hebrews 12, 18 to 29 declares that the same judgment that prevailed in terms of the law throughout the Old Testament is now going to prevail. 
that there was a great shaking from the beginning to his coming, and now there will be another great shaking. The things which are shall be shaken, so that the things which cannot be shaken may alone remain. Now here, of course, the argument is, well, this is all over with. It doesn't apply to us. Unfortunately, Calvin, too, after giving one of the finest statements of the meaning of the law, made a few unfortunate statements in which he, like Luther, appealed to natural law rather than biblical law. We'll come to natural law and what they had to say in a few weeks. But Calvin wrote, and I quote, The earth does not now cleave asunder to swallow up the rebellious. God does not now thunder from heaven as against Sodom. He does not now send fire upon wicked cities as he did in the Israelitish camp. Fiery serpents are not sent forth to inflict deadly bites in a word. Such manifest instances of punishment are not daily presented before our eyes to make God terrible to us. And for this reason, because the voice of the gospel sounds much more clearly in our ears like the sound of a trumpet, whereby we are summoned to the heavenly tribunal of Christ, unquote. Now, for a very great man who was a tremendous logician, this is a rather silly statement for Calvin to make, because he states that, well, there were daily miracles in the Old Testament, and that's nonsense. Go through the Old Testament and add up the miracles, and there are very few. In fact, there are more in the New Testament in the Gospel age than in the whole of the Old Testament. Moreover, all kinds of miraculous deliverances and judgments have existed in the Christian era. Remember when we went through the creeds and councils, how I cited some, specifically the death of Arius on the way to the cathedral? There have been many, many miraculous judgments in the Christian era. The New Testament is full of them, as I said. The judgment of Judas, of Jerusalem, of Judea, of Ananias, of Sapphira, of Herod, the angelic deliverance of Peter, of Paul and Silas, the many miracles, the deliverance from shipwreck, and so on. So we cannot say, well, the miraculous judgments and deliverances belong to the Old Testament era. They're in the New. And church history is full of the providential dealings of God. Moreover, Calvin confused the miraculous at this point with the law. The blessings and judgments are as apparent in the New Testament era to this day as in the Old Testament era. By his statement, Calvin lapsed for the moment into dispensationalism. What the law gives us is valid for all time. What the law gives us is, as it were, a set of manufacturer's instructions. 
When you buy something, you have either a little pamphlet or a sheet giving you the manufacturer's instructions and telling you this is the way to operate it. Now God, as the manufacturer, the creator of all things, has given us in the Bible his manufacturer's instructions as to how to run our lives, how to deal with the world around us, how to deal with the ground beneath our feet. And you disregard the manufacturer's instructions at your peril. You may be smarter than the manufacturer in Detroit, but you're not smarter than the maker of heaven and earth. And you either govern your life by his law word, or you pay the consequences. Because man's life is a material life, he must be governed by a material law. It's the only kind of law that can be relevant to his life. The materialism of the law is basic and necessary, and the great exhortation is as valid today as in Moses' day. Those who seek to deliver man from the biblical law violate a law which is stated in both the Old and New Testaments. In Deuteronomy 25.4, 1 Corinthians 9.9, 9, 1 Timothy 5.18 and elsewhere, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox which treadeth out the corn, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. Now what is the great exhortation telling us? It says that we as the laborers of God, as God's servants, as God's people called to obey him, have a system of rewards and punishments spelled out in the law. If we work for the Lord faithfully, the rewards are spelled out. If we don't, the penalties are spelled out. It's that simple. In every age from the beginning of the world to the end of time, the great exhortation and the whole of the law is valid. We have the manufacturer's instructions plus the penalties. So that, just as we are told when we get a TV set, there is a plate in the back and it tells you to disconnect it before you try to do this or that and what not to do, and if you don't, you're likely to get shocked. So God gives his manufacturers instructions, and he says, here are the penalties if you disobey, and here are the happy results if you obey. And God's rewards and punishments are far to be preferred to the promises of men and nations or any mythical natural law. The word of God is the only true word, the only word that stands. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank thee that thou hast spelled out thine instructions for us so plainly. Give us grace to obey them in all things 
to deal with ourselves, with one another, with the earth, with our money, with all our possessions, according to thy word. Thou hast promised, O Lord, that thou wilt bless and curse us in terms of our obedience and disobedience. And in this confidence, O Lord, we look unto thee for thy blessings as we obey thy law. In Jesus' name, amen. Are there any questions now? First of all, about our lesson. Yes. Yes, in James. Yes. The point is that the law is the ground of our relationship to God. Now, as far as our justification is concerned, Christ is our relationship. We demonstrate our sanctification, our relationship in righteousness to God and to Christ by obeying what is their law word. Now, if we break it at one point, we are ex expressing our contempt of the whole of God's law. No, no. It doesn't say that the murderer is on the same level as the man who steals a dollar. But it means that you have broken the law. The law is a unity. Yes. There is thus a pro... Well, let's put it this way. There is a progression in disobedience. You can be going the wrong way and be a hundred miles off course or you can be 50 feet the wrong way. It makes a lot of difference. In either case, you're headed the wrong way, but there's a matter of distance. In either case, you've broken the law, as it were. But one person has stubbornly persisted in a long way and another has gone so far only. Yes. Yes, that's true. Uh, up to a degree. In other words, if we are truly saved, we uh, cannot fall away. That is, the man who is truly the elect, the saved of God, has an eternal security. Now, how do we know we are truly the elect of God? We obey his laws. In other words, the proof of that election is our life. We obey his laws, and if we fall by the wayside, we quickly reestablish ourselves. In other words, the sin of David was far greater than the sin of Demas. Demas, who was a close associate of St. Paul, an outstanding missionary in the early church, 
did nothing more than to, at a certain point, drop out of the company because he didn't like the consequences and he decided that he didn't want to risk his life any further. David committed adultery and murder. But of the two, David was the true believer and Demas was not because David repented. Demas just forsook the faith. He figured, he counted the cost, as it were, and he decided, this isn't for me. Yes, right. The elect of God demonstrate their election by their works and by their repentance. Any other questions? Yes. Testings and trials are the routine and the normal problems of this world which test our faith, which discipline us. St. Paul says in Hebrews 12 that because we are the sons of God, we are subjected to trials and testings, to discipline, because if we are not sons, but bastards, he says, then there's no need to discipline us. But God subjects his own to testings. Now, punishment is something different. Punishment is in relationship to law. The testing is in relationship to strengthening the character of the person. Just as, for example, if you... build something, you want to put it to the test. You want to make sure it's going to do what it accomplish, uh, is supposed to accomplish. It's a trial run, as it were, in terms of making it more useful to you. So those whom God tests and puts to trials are people whom he loves and very often people whom he is going to use mightily. Therefore, he puts them through the paces so that they are better able to serve him. But judgment is something else. Now, let's go to the life of David to illustrate this. David was put through all kinds of tests as a very young man. As a young boy, out tending his father's sheep, you remember he had to face all kinds of tests from wild animals that came to seize the lions, uh, the uh, sheep. And he had to face these with nothing but a slingshot. He was being prepared to be a warrior, a great conqueror for God. Then he had to sit under David, called there to be a musician because he was so good 
vocally and with the heart. For a king who was losing his mind steadily because he refused to bow down to God and he couldn't get his own way. And Saul made a couple of attempts on his life, hunted him like a wild animal in the wilderness. And David went through some fearful experiences, trials, testings, for what purpose? They were all from the hand of God, and it was to prepare him to be the great king that he became. A man who could unify the nation, defeat the enemies that were arrayed against them, extend the frontiers of Israel, and make it a great power in the world of its day. So all these things were testing. On the other hand, when he sinned, then judgment came. Judgment first, the death of his son, whom he loved dearly. Judgment in the form of the rebellion of his son and of his people. Judgment in the form of a plague hitting the land so that he had to see the people suffer for his sins and the nation set back, which was a tremendous grief and distress to him. Do you see the difference there between judgment and trials? They're two distinct things. Yes. When he wouldn't even answer whom? to Job was for your benefit and mine as well as Job's because the question that Job raised Job accepted it though he slay me yet will I trust him but he didn't understand it and God said you don't understand this world by making yourself the measure and saying why me why to me and why did this happen? Because things don't happen in terms of you, but in terms of the sovereign purposes of God. And my sovereign purpose here was to show forth something, that man is not the measure, that my purposes are the measure. You see, in other words, the key to understanding the world is not what we are and what happens to us, but what God is and what God purposes to do. Even what the devil purposed to do was a part of the predestined counsel of God. So the devil himself served God there and was confounded. Yes.
Many people do not face testing much of their life. I've seen a lot of Christians who've had an easy life, and in the past generation or so, most people have had easy lives, and face the testing at the time of death, old age. And I've seen some come through, and the death has been so beautiful, you uh, want to go out singing. And others fall apart because everything was easy. They never were tested, but everyone is tested. If by nothing else, by death. A few things I want to share with you in the remaining minutes. <clears throat> the new magazine, RAP, by Ramp Ramparts College is out. And it is interesting that the issue contains quite a spirited defense of abortion. The woman has a right to do with her body as she pleases. This is the morality of anarchism. It's not surprising that Mr. Lefebvre is going to be the invited speaker at Midland College in Michigan, which many conservatives feel is a fine college. It is anarchistic to the core. That's the nature of Midland. Then there is a very important book, which is a bestseller, surprisingly, which I think you ought to read. It uh, is very well written. There are only a few minor points where I would disagree. It's by an investment counselor, Harry Brown, How You Can Profit from the Coming Devaluation. And it has a great deal of very specific information about what is happening. Then it is practical in that what it does is to take every kind of eventuality, runaway inflation, deflation, recession, depression, whatever they might do, and tell you, now, what should you do in this case? What is the best kind of investment? What is safe and what is dangerous? Of course, there's not much he can say is good. And he says a lot of money will be made, for example, in the stock market in the immediate future, but he said a lot will be lost because it's going to be so dangerous that uh, commodities, great deal may be made there, but he said it's probably strictly for professionals and so on. But he gives it very specifically in terms of the possibilities so that he says if this happens and if this happens, this in terms of economic law is what you can expect. I'd like to read just a few paragraphs. Runaway inflation is undoubtedly the worst thing that can hit a highly industrialized nation. Once prices are changing daily, you know there is real trouble ahead, just ahead. Accounts of runaway inflation always dwell on the need to have a wheelbarrow full of paper money just to buy some groceries. But the most important consequence is the final destruction of the currency itself. Inevitably, the point is reached where the paper money is totally worthless. What happens then? There is no possibility of exchanging with paper money. The government can issue a new currency, but unless it has gold reserves for backing, highly unlikely at that point, the new currency will be worthless. 
It will not be accepted by individuals who just lost all they had because of the last currency. Historically, there have been only two ways the economy could immediately begin rebuilding after having lost its currency. One way requires that hard money be available, gold or silver coins. If so, exchange can begin immediately. But that usually is not the case. Very rarely does runaway inflation take place in a nation where the citizens still have hard money. The private holdings of gold and silver provide a check on the government and prevent inflation from going too far. Usually it is the second uh, way that ends the standstill. That is for foreigners to come into the country, buy up property, and hire workers using valuable foreign currency. In the past century or so, the foreigners have almost always been American traders who came in with good old Yankee dollars. The world has depended upon American entrepreneurial skill to keep things turning long before foreign aid. But what happens if it is America that has lost its currency? Where will the help come from? There is little precedent to look to. There have been a few violent inflations in this country, such as the greenback era after the Civil War. But only certain kinds of currency suffered, such as the U.S. notes, which Lincoln dumped on the nation during the war. They became virtually useless in exchange. But there were still valuable gold and silver certificates in circulation, not to mention gold and silver themselves. But what would happen now if our dollars became totally worthless? It's doubtful that foreign currency would have much acceptance here. We're not used to it as people of other nations are, and we can add that they're headed for the same thing anyway. Our only salvation would probably be the silver coins that are currently hoarded in bureau drawers and basements. Let us hope the government does not succeed in melting them. For if it does, the one tool that could pull us through the crisis would be destroyed. Even with the coins available, there would be a bad period before any order could be established. Once you begin to let your imagination run away with the possibilities inherent in hyperinflation, the outlook can be pretty grim. Without a currency, the government cannot operate its schools or police force or pay tax collectors. Most likely, all government in this country, federal, state, and local, would collapse. Your faithful cop on the corner wouldn't be there. He would be scrounging around like everyone else, looking for food to eat. Food supplies would no longer be coming into the cities. Once all the grocery stores had been looted, the riots would become even more grotesque. The worst place in the world to be at a time like that would be in any metropolitan area. The old philosophy of home ownership says that at least you always have a roof over your head. won't be attractive if the roof is 100 miles from where you'd consider it safe to be. If you leave in a metropolitan area, you certainly need to be prepared to get out in a hurry to some prearranged area of retreat far from any city. You need a place to go where there is food, protection, and shelter. You can then wait out the worst of the crisis. When some semblance of order has been reestablished, you can return to civilization. If you have prepared yourself properly, you will have a large supply of silver or gold coins or both with which to acquire instruments of wealth. If you live in a rural area now, be sure you're capable of being self-sufficient for a year or so. For if runaway inflation should hit the nation, you may not be able to count on the sources of supply you are used to having. The interim period sounds pretty distasteful, I know, but then so does tuberculosis or war.
and a look at the present economy indicates that the possibility of runaway inflation is far too great to be ignored. But it only has to be grim if you are not prepared for it. If you are ready, you will not only be spared the worst, you will find an opportunity for new wealth. Then another book that I'd like to report on to you. It's a hardback published about two years ago and now available in about a year ago and now available in paperback. The Closed Corporation, American Universities in Crisis by James Ridgway. Now the book is written by a liberal. It's written from his perspective. This is an important book on college campuses in the hardback edition as well as in this. It explains in part the reason for much of the student rebellion. Now, of course, to the students as to this man, it's a kind of fascist, although he doesn't use that word, the students do, uh, establishment that we have, the military-industrial hookup with the universities as a part of it. What is the reality of the matter? Now, over ten years ago, I made the statement in Northern California that Stanford University had more federal funds in it than private funds, so it was a federal university. And subsequent figures bore me out, and the figures he gives here certainly bear me out. What he says is this. The federal government has made the universities its instrument. The various bureaus of the federal government and the CIA. So that the university world is the world through which it accomplishes what it chooses to do today. For business to get ahead, big business today hires not only ex-bureaucrats, but university professors to be on its boards because they have a link to the gravy train and the gravy train is fed through the universities. Thus it gives the example of the recently retiring Chancellor of the University of California at Los Angeles, Franklin D. Murphy. Now Murphy was a good example of this link between the government, the university, and big business, whereby the three are controlled from Washington. Murphy was chancellor, but he was also on the board of Ford Motor Company, Hallmark Cards, McCall Corporation, and the L.A. Times Mirror Company. And he went from the presidency or chancellorship of UCLA to be president of the Time Mirror Corporation. What the government does, in effect, is to say to the universities, you are going to be our tool whereby we are going to accomplish what we want, to command business and the intellectual community. And so it feeds money, untold millions. The amount is fantastic. The biggest on the gravy train are schools like Columbia and Stanford, Berkeley and UCLA, 
the University of Chicago, Harvard, Princeton, and so on, the big schools. They have untold funds coming. They channel all kinds of contracts to industry, and industry in return, through all kinds of tax breaks, pours money back into the universities where it is controlled also by these federally uh, governed people. So that a kind of new tool is set up, a new bureaucracy in which the university is the key figure. Now, the military is brought into this in that now the old conception of the military has been abolished. The Pentagon is the new State Department, and the military is used no longer in terms of the old-fashioned concept of war, whereby you go in and you fight to win. You go in and you maneuver in order to set the stage for negotiations to accomplish what you purposed in foreign policy. So the idea that the war in Vietnam or anywhere else is to be fought in terms of military strategy is ridiculous. It is to be fought in terms of maneuvering to accomplish certain ends. And it is naive to assume that military purposes are of any value. It is the new means of foreign policy. And, of course, this is the thing that infuriates the students in part. They're just tools in this establishment foreign policy program where they, by, they are sent over there to die while they maneuver things to get the proper thing accomplished at the conference table. It's a very important book in spite of the fact that its perspective is not our perspective. The relationship, incidentally, oh, and the campuses that are established all over the world as a part of this uh, international program whereby the universities serve to affect foreign policy. You find campuses all over Europe and Latin America even in an out-of-way place like Nepal, there is a campus of one of the universities in Nepal. Uh, I can check in a moment which school has a campus there. Yes, the University of California at Berkeley has a campus in Nepal, which is heavily subsidized and has as its purpose to further some aspects of our foreign policy. Moreover, the universities are deeply involved in urban renewal and are a big instrument of it. And one of the reasons for the hatred by the Negroes of the liberals is precisely this aspect of it. The liberal hatred of the Negro is very real welfareism and all kinds of civil rights programs are the payoffs to have them shut up and stay in line while they reorganize the rest of us. And their ruthlessness in destroying an area that they want to take over, for example, the University of Chicago, in wiping out all the Negroes for a sizable area around the University of Chicago, 
build a belt around itself is described. I saw this when I was there a few years ago at the University of Chicago. Uh, at uh, Chicago, they're so bad that one of the Harvard officials says, Julian makes me cringe. You know when he wants to empty a place, he'll get an insurance company to cancel its policy, then he'll turn around and get the city to condemn the place because it doesn't have any insurance. We just couldn't get away with that here, that is in Cambridge, although they get away with a lot, as he documents. Now, the only way you can pressure insurance companies to do that is if you have the government behind you. So it's a very revealing book on the real government of our day and the total ruthlessness uh, with which it operates. As he remarks, the last place for what we consider an education today is the university world. It's not interested in that. It's a power tool in the power structure of our day. Well, our time is up. Let us bow our heads in prayer. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ Rules dot com